Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Today, it's great to chat with Andrew Huberman on the podcast. Andrew is Associate Professor of Neurobiology and of Ophthalmology at Stanford. His lab is focused on brain function, development, and repair, with emphasis on regeneration to prevent and cure blindness. They also study the neural circuits that control visual fear and are developing tools to remap them and to treat anxiety disorders. Additionally, Huberman is host of the popular podcast called Huberman Lab. Andrew, it's uh, so, so great to chat with you today. Great to be here. I've been looking forward to this. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> Thanks. I've been really looking forward to this as well. Uh, congrats on the uh, awesome success of your podcast. Uh, what, what compelled you to do a podcast? Uh, well, um, the short answer is I have um, the great Lex Fridman to blame for that one. Uh, Lex Fridman, uh, as some of your listeners may know, is, is a uh, researcher at MIT, computer scientist, physics a guy who uh, has a podcast where he interviews scientists and now he's branched out to talk to people in cryptocurrency and uh, martial arts, all his interests. And I was a guest on there and Lex and I got to be friends and we had a little discussion. Uh, you know, this was uh, end of 2020. I'd been teaching neuroscience on Instagram for a couple of years. I started that in 2019 and I uh, was a guest on various podcasts and then after we finished recording, Lex said, you know, have you ever thought about starting a podcast? I said, no, absolutely not. <laughs> and, um, but then, you know, he impressed upon me that, you know, that there's a lot of interest in science learning. And I thought, well, you know, I love the field of neuroscience so much and I love a lot work that's done by other labs, not just mine, of course. And there's so much out there that I feel people could know about and should know about and could benefit from learning that I thought, you know, I'm going to do a podcast that's more or less the equivalent of a university lecture for the first 20 minutes, kind of introduce a topic, a little bit of mechanism, and then talk about some tools that stem from that mechanism. 
And it's, uh, it's a different sort of podcast for a couple of reasons. One is that um, we don't uh, jump from topic to topic. We do an entire month focused, for instance, on sleep and how to get better at sleeping or neuroplasticity and how to get better at changing your brain and what the science has to say about that. And so in some ways, it's a little bit more like a, a university curriculum merged with a podcast. But uh, that's the reason. Um, and I've had a lot of fun doing it. I, I'm still learning. There's a learning curve, of course, for me. Uh, and, but thus far, it's been very gratifying. And uh, we're always seeking to be better. And I realize as I'm saying this, Scott, that we've got to get you on as a guest at some point because we are soon going to have guests. Oh, uh, cool. Right now, it's just been me blabbing at the microphone. But starting soon, I've got some colleagues from Stanford and elsewhere who are going to come on. So maybe we can um, turn the tables on you a little bit and uh, have you on as a guest. That'd be a uh, pleasure. I mean, no pressure or anything, but uh, it'd be great if you would. Well, I would love that. I, I, I humbly accept that invitation. Yeah, so I'd like to talk a little about your background a little bit. I'll go, go back a little bit. And can you kind of tell our audience uh, what you got your uh, degree in, your advanced degrees, and what maybe even your dissertation topic was about and how that led to the work you're doing today? Sure. Um, I got interested in neuroscience when I was a sophomore in college. I was studying psychology, actually, and I took a course in abnormal psychology. And this was the early 90s. And the, uh, the drug Prozac had just been released, essentially. The book Listening to Prozac had come out. And I was fascinated by some of the more biological aspects of abnormal psychology, I don't know if they still call it abnormal psychology, but, you know, in an abnormal psychology class in the 90s, you'd hear about uh, schizophrenia, depression, OCD, et cetera, which I guess, uh, given the prevalence of those conditions, I guess now we should probably call normal uh, psychology. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, there's so many people challenged with it. So um, probably the course should be renamed now. But in any case, I re started realizing that my, my interest was moving toward um, neurotransmitters and things of that sort, but I didn't know anything about it. So I took a class in what they, at that time was called biopsychology. Mm. The field of neuroscience did not exist. There was no named field of neuroscience, nor was there any neuroscience program or department in the world at that time. It's kind of interesting how young a field neuroscience is. There was neurobiology, neurophysiology, psychobiology, which is a wild name, uh, biopsychology. But what happened was I started um, looking for courses. I started taking classes in physiology, in cell biology, and psychology. And in the end, I got my degree in a combination of biology and psychology. And I worked in a lab, did a senior thesis, looking at thermal regulation of all things it, under conditions of MDMA exposure. So these are animals that we would give ecstasy MDMA, and we looked at how they would uh, change their perception of temperature. That was my senior thesis. We published that. Um, I loved working in the lab. I found that uh, working with my hands was something I really enjoyed. I never really liked working with animals much. I'm an animal lover. And also I just, I didn't really enjoy it that much. But um, I did do that and my lab still does that to some extent um, for the 25 plus years following. Then what happened was I went off and did my master's at UC Berkeley. It was intended to be a PhD, but it had a master's along the way. Um, and I was studying the effects of two things. Uh, one was the effects of early androgen exposure, testosterone and its derivatives on differentiation of the brain, 
in humans. She was part of a study by a guy named, led by a guy named Mark Breedlove that explored how the, the, the digit ratios, the length of our fingers actually correlates with um, two things that are interesting. One, how much testosterone we were exposed to in utero while we were still in our mother's womb and how that impacts, believe it or not, sexual orientation in adulthood. It's a very robust literature uh, that was has now been replicated six times. Uh, we don't have time to delve into it, but I was fascinated by hormones and behavior. And I was also studying a system on uh, called the, the circadian timing system, how light orients our sense of time and when we sleep and when we, we are alert. Along the way, I took a class from the great Carla Schatz, who um, is the person who coined the phrase fire together, wire together. Carla is a absolutely world-class researcher in the field of brain development and plasticity. Um, the, the phrase fire together, wire together is often ascribed to a Donald Hebb, but that is incorrect. It was Carla who coined that phrase. Um, Heb said something else, which was unrelated actually. Uh, but for some reason it falls to Heb, but the, the, it, it's Carla's. Um, and I started hanging around people in her lab, uh, and learning how to do the sorts of experiments they were doing, which was looking at how electrical activity in the brain shapes the brain and how neuroplasticity occurs, how we can change our brains in response to experience. So I had the, the challenging, but, um, turned out to be fortunate circumstance of going to Carla and saying, Hey, you know, I, I really want to do what you do uh, more than I want to do the stuff that I'm currently doing. And she said, well, you know, I'm moving my lab to Harvard, but there's a lab up the road at Davis. You see Davis, um, that's working on some similar things and there's a new PI there. I think you'd enjoy working with her. So much to the dismay of uh, people that were close to me, I took my master's from Berkeley, did not take my PhD. I left by choice. I was doing fine in the program. Um, I moved up to Davis and started working in a lab, working on these questions that I was really drawn to. Uh, and I ended up doing my PhD in the lab at Davis of a woman named Barbara Chapman. And my thesis was on the role of neural activity and molecular guidance cues, chemicals that shape the developing brain. And I have to say, you know, uh, just be, Davis was a great place. I loved it. It's still a great place. I think um, just as a little bit of a message to any of the listeners who might be pursuing degrees in science, I, I've always focused on particular scientific questions and asked where could I be most productive around those questions for the next five or six years. Walking away from Berkeley was hard. I loved Berkeley. Davis was this little Cowtown, I thought on the way to Tahoe, it was not, didn't have the prestige that Berkeley had. And yet my time at Davis was one of the most productive phases of my career. We, Barbara and I published a, a lot of papers together. We um, had a lot of fun doing it. And then when I finished, I did a postdoc at Stanford with the late Ben Barris. Ben uh, worked on neuron glial interactions and uh, Ben is actually quite famous for not just his science, but he was a big advocate for um, for women in science because he used he, before he was Ben, he was Barbara. So he did the control experiment. He had the experience of being a woman in science and a man in science. And I absolutely loved working with Ben. We were very, very close. Um, and I didn't work on anything related to what Ben worked on. He let me come to the lab and work on finding genetic markers for neurons in the eye that degenerate in blinding diseases. So I skipped to that. I had a ton of fun doing it. And, uh, you know, sadly, Ben passed away in 2017. 
but that was great fun. And then I was a assistant professor at UC San Diego where I continued to work on neural regeneration and repair in the eye. And we started to work a bit on how internal states like stress, et cetera, impact behavior, in particular fear behavior. And then I was recruited back to Stanford where I'm now an associate tenured professor of neurobiology and ophthalmology. And my lab works on neural repair and brain states such as fear, uh, performance, uh, et cetera. So it's a long, that was a long answer, but the, the, the common thread through all of it is I, I'm absolutely obsessed with biology and neuroscience and I, and physiology and psychology. And I've basically let my interests guide my choices. I've, um, I've never married myself to one particular line of work. Uh, and it served me well. Um, it does help to have tenure if you're going to switch uh, fields, <laughs> but, uh, I've had great fun and you know, my, I've made the decision that my life as a scientist will be pursuing the thing that interests me most. And I will never, ever allow myself to wish I was working on something else more. I'll always work on the thing that I love the very most without negotiation. I love that. I love your commitment to science and also your love for the biological basis of human behavior. You know, for in some circles, that's just even studying that is just is controversial. Like, even if you just say I study like like it, it, it should be the most uncontroversial thing in the world to say that there's a biological basis to human behavior. Um, have you faced any sort of um, pushback by any of your colleagues or anyone? Well, let's see. Uh, Stanford's been very supportive. Uh, you know, when I started podcasting, I, I worried a little bit that, um, you know, anytime an academic starts putting their neck out there more publicly, you always worry a little bit. Um, but they've been very supportive of that. In terms of, um, you know, like my podcast and some of the work I do in my lab now is so human oriented. It's about tools that humans can use. It's about, we have a human lab. We went from studying mice just, and we still study mice because there's some questions you can only address in mice to a lab that does virtual reality and studies fear in humans. We study sleep in humans by, we measure people's sleep while they're out there in the world. We're doing that right now. They're breathing while they're at home. We're measuring that. I think it's fair to say that some of my colleagues probably, and not just at Stanford, but in the, in the scientific community at large, probably wondered, you know, what is Huberman doing? You know, he's been working on mice and uh, ferrets and, you know, this kind of thing. Was he doing work on humans? But there's one solution to that problem, which is to publish really good papers. And I'm quite happy with the fact that we've published some papers in humans now and we've got more on the way. And the, the solution to any critique or potential critique is always going to be productivity. And, and I felt that it was just crucial to move to work on humans. And I suppose occasionally people will say, well, what about, uh, you know, the psychology of this particular behavior like stress or what about, um, you know, spiritual aspects to this? And I, I, my response is always the same, which is I have a, a choice to look at things through any number of different lenses. But the lens I know how to look at things through is the lens of science and neuroscience and biology. So when I hold up a lens to something like depression or stress, I'm in no way, shape or form saying that spirituality or that psychology or sociology don't play a, a role. I'm just saying I'm looking through this particular lens. And so I think something that the general public and the scientific community, frankly, ought to learn more of, uh, or consider 
more um, seriously is that something can be highly accurate without being exhaustive, right? You can be absolutely right, but you're not right about every aspect of something. And so my goal and, and what I know how to do is look at particular problems, including human behavior and human brain states through the lens of neuroscience. But I certainly don't claim that those are the only lens that we can look at things through. And, you know, it's fun to consider what a view of something uh, like stress might look like through a different lens, but I'm just not trained to do that. So I also tend to stay in my lane um, as much as possible, although I define that lane pretty broadly as a biology. So no real pushback. Um, One thing, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, Scott, as a, as a trained academic is that occasionally, or I should say often people will say, what about the work of so-and-so? What do you think about the work of so-and-so? And they're usually asking about some online self-help person that is not, I might have a background in neuroscience, but they're not a professional neuroscientist. So I will, I never comment on other people's work unless it's published in scientific papers, or I can comment on their ability as a communicator. But there are a lot of theories out there that probably are worthwhile, even though there's no peer reviewed study to support it. But I can't comment on that because I can't see the data. So when people I won't name names here, but you can fill in your favorite um, online uh, guru, people will say, Oh, that sounds a lot like the work I heard about a so and so but if it's not something I can look at in a manuscript or a textbook, I, I can't really work with that. But I still think there's a lot of great stuff out there outside of biology. Of course, there is. Of course. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for that. Uh, well, the topics you study are so relevant uh, to the experience of humans. And I thought we could just go through some of the broadest topics um, of things that uh, that people, we can really apply for their own lives to, to, be, uh, to make their lives easier. Um, the first topic I'd like to bring up is the topic of emotions. It's a big topic. Um, I thought uh, an interesting way to kind of get in get into that topic is to ask you whether we can predict our emotions before they occur or before they kind of spiral out of control. I, yeah, great question, and certainly that's a, a challenging one. You know, emotions, as you know better than I, are difficult to define. You know, the field of neuroscience doesn't even really know how to define emotions. People throw around things like fear and all this kind of thing. But in, in neuroscience, really, you can only measure behavior in, especially in animal studies, because we don't know how you can ask a mouse all day what it's feeling, but all you can do is measure its behavior. And people are not that good at understanding their own emotions or describing them. The language of emotions is both vast and nonspecific, right? I mean, if I say I'm feeling um, mellow and happy, that's informative, but I have no idea whether or not that's the same as you're mellow and happy. I I just don't know. Uh, So one of the things that we've done as a laboratory is to try and address this question through the lens of the autonomic nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system has all these fancy names associated with it, like sympathetic and parasympathetic. But the simplest way to think about it is that it's just a seesaw inside of all of us that adjusts our level of alertness or calmness. So when I say calmness, I mean parasympathetic nervous system, alertness, sympathetic, and it's kind of a push-pull between the two. And the autonomic nervous system is constantly adjusting our level of alertness and calmness. Alertness and calmness, for me, is a useful way to look at the question of emotions because if you ask how alert or calm are you relative to the demands that are being placed on you, 
oftentimes you get an answer that relates to what what we know is the valence of emotion, whether or not a, an emotion is good or bad, positive or negative. So for instance, if I'm sleepy and it's time to fall asleep, great, that's a great place to be. If I'm wide awake and I need to fall asleep, that's stressful, okay? If I'm wide awake and I have a lot of work to do, that's generally a good place to be. But if I'm wide awake and I have a lot of work to do and I'm so alert that I'm panicking and I can't control my behavior, that's not a great place to be. Now, this is very coarse language to get at emotions, but it's the kind of thing that we can measure in the laboratory. And now using various technology, we can even measure this sort of thing while people are out of the laboratory. So we take a very crude and yet a very tractable and measurable approach to looking at emotions. Now we also get people's subjective reports of whether or not they feel good or bad, et cetera. But that's the lens that, uh, that we look at this through. And it's not perfect. You know, I mean, uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett and, and other psychologists would say, you know, I, I think quite correctly that emotion has all this context, right? Being devastatingly sad at the loss of a loved one is appropriate. Being devastatingly sad because you wake up and you can't attach that to any particular life event is called depression. So there, there's this very interesting issue as to whether or not our internal state, which is, includes alertness and calmness, matches our external pressures or environment. And that equation plus our kind of goals in life, short-term and long-term goals, generally, at least to my mind, spells out to whether or not you're, you're happy or sad, right? Mm -hmm. So, or works out to whether or not you're anxious or mellow or appropriately alert or appropriately sleepy. And so I don't want to, you know, just shed a ton of parameters on this, but I would say the tool that emerges from this is that if people can start to afford a little bit of control over their internal state, what we found is that then they can adjust their emotions, emotions in air quotes for those of you listening, um, they can adjust their emotions by simply changing their relationship between their internal world, what we call interoception, your perception of your internal state, relative to the external world. So for instance, if I am very alert and it's time to sleep and I can actively calm myself by using particular approaches, which one can and we could talk about, then I can suddenly go from being stressed to feeling great because I'm falling asleep and I'm sleepy or I'm asleep or I slept well. If one can adjust their level of alertness up in response to a demand, well then we start to feel some control, some, some you know, will over the world and in the world and then people generally start to feel more quote unquote empowered or as if they have more self-control and so there are tools to do this and so we look at emotions through the lens of this autonomic nervous system and that brings us to the word states i'm a big fan of the word states and what i'm wishing for maybe some of the audience will tell us is would be language that more accurately describes the human condition because it focuses on states. States of mind have a persistence, they can be short or long lasting, they have a valence, they can, we can say they're great or they're terrible or just neutral. States are something that are, I think, more tractable than the word emotions and states definitely are supported 
or have a, I should say, a foundation of alertness or calmness is kind of tilting back and forth of a seesaw. So that's a long answer, but that's the way that we approach it. And I would say if anyone wants to have better control over their emotions, they should focus on learning to control this so-called autonomic nervous system because that is going to be, at least by our data, more powerful than simply telling oneself, oh, I should be happy or, oh, I should you know, focus on the good, not the bad. That's all powerful too, but hmm. we focus on the physiology. Cool. No, that that's very cool. Um, uh, what do you what do you think of William Fleeson's model of uh, trait trait density distributions? As uh, all traits are distributions of states um, that we can you know kind of change uh, our traits by changing our pattern of states. I mean, it just seems to dovetail with what you're talking about a little bit. Uh, well. I have to confess, I, I'm not an expert in it, um, so I and I should certainly read up on it. So maybe afterwards you can cool. send me the, down <laughs> yeah, the road no some great psychology yeah. references. As I mentioned, you know, we, we look at things from a, a, a terribly uh, narrow lens of, of physiology, but I'd love to learn more. But from the way you just described it, it sounds marvelous. I, I love that idea, and mm. and I love it because what I want to see is the field of neuroscience and psychology, which are now one in the same. I mean, that's one of the wonderful things about neuroscience in the last 10 years is the doors have just swung open to everybody from AI to, you know, to psychology. But what I would like to see is some real progress in terms of concrete answers and first principles so that in 10 years, there's a common language for people to talk about emotions. But I love the idea that traits are um, assembled from an array of states. I think that's a marvelous idea. But then again, it's very much in line with the kinds of things my lab yeah. does. So I want to admit complete bias in my response. <laughs> I'll send you those papers. Um, yeah. Great. Just while we're still on this topic of emotion, I'd love to hear more about the work you're doing with your lab to, um, to alter the neural circuits that control visual fear, fear that control visual fear and how to remap them and treat anxiety disorders. Yeah. So the two main ways to adjust one's internal state it are respiration, breathing, mm -hmm. and the visual system. And we can talk about the visual system first. So uh, first of all, the visual system and sight is the dominant way by which we navigate the world and survive and make sense of the world. For blind people, it will be hearing and touch. But for most people, um, who are sighted, it's going to be vision. The two pieces of uh, things in the front of your face called your eyes are actually parts of your nervous system, your central nervous system. Your retinas are part of your brain and they are the only part of your brain outside the cranial vault, outside the skull. And they were put there for a reason, which is to adjust your level of alertness or sleepiness depending on time of day. That's why they were there. We know this because there are a set of neurons in there whose primary job is to set your level of sleepiness or alertness according to time of day. And the other neurons that are in there that see colors and motion and allow you to comprehend what the difference between a face and a, and a car, those evolved later. So vision is by far the most powerful way in which our brain focuses in which it's emotional states shift around, et cetera. And a lot of this is happening subconsciously. So for instance, when we are stressed or simply more alert or excited, positively alert, our pupils get larger 
and they dilate, our eyes actually widen. This is a non-trivial thing, but our eyelids actually open a bit more. When we're sleepy, our eyes start to shut. That's sort of a duh. But a lot of people don't know the reason for that is that the circuitry in our brainstem that controls our alertness, things like locus ceruleus, reticular activating system, all those fancy names, they connect very directly to the eyes. And when we are excited, we actually narrow, we contract our field of view. And in addition to that, because we contract our field of view, we get a more kind of soda straw or tunnel view of the world, we also start to analyze time differently. And the simplest way to explain this is that if you're ever in a rush or you're stressed or you're excitedly waiting for something, it will seem as if the outside world is moving much more slowly. The person in line in front of you at the grocery store while you've got your mask on and you're having a hard time breathing and they're returning something, you're like, oh my God, it's gonna seem like they're moving very slowly. They're not moving slowly, you're just slicing time more finely. This is also why people who get into accidents or experience trauma will talk about things happening in slow motion. The opposite is true. When we are relaxed, our eyes start to close, our pupils constrict, they constrict for other reasons too, but they, they sort of constrict. And things outside us will seem like they're moving very fast. If you're ever sleepy and you wake up and you've had a rough week and you look at your email and there's all this stuff coming at you, like, oh my goodness, there's all this stuff. It seems like the world is moving fast and you're not caught up. You're not caught, you're not caught up, you're just, it's just that you're sleepy and so the world out, you're slicing time in broader time bins. So it turns out that the visual system also can impact our level of alertness, just like our level of alertness can impact our visual system. So what my lab has been focusing on is how if people, for instance, just take a panoramic view of their environment. So this is not moving your head around or moving your eyes around, but let's say I'm looking at you on a screen right now because we're doing this by Skype. But if I were to dilate my gaze so I still see you, Scott, but I also see the walls behind me and the ceiling and the floor, and now I see myself in the environment that I'm in, that disengages a circuit in the brainstem and actually leads to a more active calming of internal state. Conversely, if I deliberately bring my eyes to what's called a vergence point, where I bring my eyes together at a common site and I start to look at that particular place, that engages a circuit in the brainstem leads to increases in alertness and actually leads to increases in cognitive focus. So cognitive focus follows mental focus and, uh, excuse me, visual focus. And so to repeat that, cognitive focus follows visual focus and visual dilation will also lead to kind of cognitive dilation. And so what we've been studying is how tightening or broadening our literal field of view using our eyes can allow people to calm themselves or increase their levels of alertness. And there's a third way in in which the visual system can impact things like fear. Some people will recognize this as the main thrust behind EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. You know, for years people would ask me about EMDR, they'd say, what do you think of EMDR? And EMDR is where you move your eyes from side to side while recounting a trauma, typically to a trained trauma therapist. I'm, to be honest, Scott, I thought this stuff was complete hooey. I was like, this is ridiculous. How can that possibly be? I'm a vision scientist. I work on stress. It doesn't make any sense. And then I ate my words because starting in 2018, 
2019 and 2020, there were five papers published in really good journals, including Nature, one of the apex science journals, showing that lateralized eye movements from side to side, so just sweeping one's eyes from side to side, not up or down, and yes, eyes have to be open, leads to a suppression in the activity of a brain center that many people might be familiar with called the amygdala, which is a threat detection center in the brain. Mm. And I thought that is crazy, but the data were so solid and the, the groups that were publishing this were not psychologists, they were neurobiologists studying mm. eye movements. So there so it was really a, an absence of bias there. And it turns out that the reason that these lateralized eye movements suppress activity of the amygdala, at least the, the reason we think they do, is that when we are in forward ambulation, when we walk forward, cycle forward, anytime we are in self-generated movement, we are generating what's called self-generated optic flow. Things move past us. Now, unlike your phone, where if you take a picture on your phone and you move your phone, it's blurry. As you move through space and you move your head and your eyes, you don't experience the world as blurry. And that's because you are constantly generating what are called slip compensating eye movements. When you move your head from side to side, your, your eyes are moving so as to not generate blurry images. And moving your eyes from side to side, even if just you're sitting in a chair or something like that, simulates forward movement. And we believe that forward ambulation, and this could be cycling, biking, walking, running, et cetera, provided you're not looking at your phone or some little narrow box of, of uh, visual space, suppresses the activity of the, of the fear centers. And this is, we're assuming, is part of the primordial circuitry by which animals, including humans, advance towards things that were uncertain. And so it is the great insight of the late psychologist Francine Shapiro, who was, I believe, in Palo Alto, maybe had an affiliation to Stanford, I don't recall. She figured out, she created EMDR while taking a walk in the woods. That's how the story goes anyway on Wikipedia, that she was walking in the woods, was recalling something troubling, and realized that she was much calmer about it than when she recalled the same thing just sitting in a chair. She exported the eye movement component to her clinic, and just to be clear, a number of people have said to me, well, EMDR has mixed results for treating trauma and reducing fear. And I've talked to my colleagues about this, my colleagues in psychiatry. It turns out that EMDR is most successful in dealing with very specific traumas, specific events that can be recalled in detail as someone does this. And I would encourage people, of course, to do this with a trained professional. This isn't the kind of thing that you, you know, do at home alone, although there is a place for these eye movements, but it's not so good at, for instance, at dealing with um, like an entire childhood or an entire divorce or all of 2020. It seems to map very well toward recall of a particular challenging incident while moving one's eyes in this way is essentially uncoupling the feeling of fear from the recall of the event. Now, the movement of the eyes from side to side can be used more conventionally outside the context of trauma if one is feeling kind of nervous about public speaking or, or feeling too much internal arousal for whatever reason. I don't see any reason why uh, trying it couldn't hurt in that circumstance. But in terms of treating trauma, it's, there's decent success. And there's a, there's a great book, I'm gonna look over because I have it to my right, which is I Move Into Sensitization and Reprocessing Therapy. There are three editions of this now written, and this is one of only three behavior, uh, approved, I would say APA 
American uh, Psychological Association approved behavioral therapies. I think it's exposure therapy, EMDR, and now with uh, there's one other sort of exposure type therapy that's been approved. So it has some merit. And again, this is just vision, right? This is using the visual system to adjust the internal level of stress. And in certain circumstances, that can be very beneficial. I really want to try it right now. (laughs) I want to like just sign up with a new therapist and try it. Um, Yeah, a number of people have reported good results with it. Not everyone. You know, there are going to be some things just like hypnosis is another area. My colleague David Spiegel at uh, Department of Psychiatry at Stanford is um, actively involved in, uh, you know, work on hypnosis and how it changes default networks in the brain and dealing with it. Hypnosis has a very high, greater than chance success rate with many things, but some people will not benefit from it as much as others. I think that's been shown too. That's the beauty of individual differences. Um, mm-hmm. Some people are, have greater susceptibility to hypnotizability. Openness to experience right. personality trait predicts that. Yeah. Actually, there's a, there's a fun little twist there relates to the visual system. Mm. So Spiegel developed something called the Spiegel eye roll test. I can do it on you right now and mm-hmm. people can try it. Don't do this if you're driving. So because of the relationship between the brainstem and the eyes and eye movements, there's a particular aspect of eye movements that predict on a one to four scale how hypnotizable somebody will be. Let me see if we can do wow. this by Skype. So if you look up towards the ceiling, Scott, mm-hmm. um, if you look up and now just at slowly close your eyes while maintaining your gaze upward. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I'm not. Okay. And then stop. Yeah. Okay. Stop. Uh, so uh, I would say maybe you're like a two um, one, so Spiegel, What's it out of? And I'm, on a, on a scale so what one. you're looking for, yeah. So on a scale of one to four, so you're, I would say you're mildly hypnotizable, but again, I'm not an expert in this. Spiegel taught me this. So, and he's the expert. It's actually called the Spiegel eye roll test. But what happens is as you look up, it turns out upward directed gazes are associated with alertness. Okay. Who would have known? But it makes total sense. And mm-hmm. downward gaze and closing of the eyelids are associated with sleepiness. Yeah. Exactly. And every, and it, when you hear it, it's like, oh, this is so obvious, but this is again, ancient circuitry. So this looking up while trying to close the eyes is something that Spiegel discovered is a, it's a kind of contradiction of, of goals, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, of looking up, but actually closing the eyes. It's hard to do actually. The eyes tend to flutter and depending yeah. on how much the eyes roll back and you see the whites of the eyes, mm-hmm. it depends dictates whether or not you're one or two or a three or a four. Now yours rolled back a little bit, not a ton. And Mm. this is all correlative, but what they found is that this predicts hypnotizability. Mm. So some people also find it very hard to close their eyelids while looking up. And a really good trained clinical hypnotist will have you look up and then close your eyes. Stage hypnosis is a completely different business and I don't even want to talk about it because it's kind of a disgrace to clinical um, hypnosis. But Anyway, I'm not a trained uh, clinical hypnotist, um, but I do, if people want to sample with um, clinical hypnotism, by the way, there's a terrific free app that um, Spiegel and colleagues uh, released um, called Reverie, R-E-V-E-R-I. They have a one-minute hypnosis, a five-minute hypnosis for anxiety, sleep, et cetera. It's available on Apple and Android, and um, it's, a, it's a free tool, but it has backing in numerous clinical and peer-reviewed published studies from Stanford. 
So I just want to, this isn't just some random app. This is developed by sure. people who do this for a living who are, you know, board certified MDs and things of that sort. Well, that is super cool. Um, I think I used to be more susceptible to hypnotizability and then I started to wise up. <laughs> I, I become more cynical. I became more cynical of people's intentions. <laughs> I thought you're mis. I, I, I so enjoy your Twitter feed because Thank you. your Twitter feed makes less cynical. It makes me more positive, well, less cynical. Well, can you imagine just how uh, innocent I was before? <laughs> because I still am. I still am a, a bit. Uh, you know, I I have a lot of uh, positive faith in humanity. I really do. But um, uh, I, I I used to I used to be very very like susceptible to like. Like people, like gullible to the extent of just gullible, you know? <laughs> well, I think that um, Jack Feldman, who's a wonderful colleague who works on mm. the science of respiration breathing at, from UCLA, um, he likes to say, and he's a New Yorker, and he likes to say, be skeptical, not cynical. Mm. And I think it's a wonderful phrase. You know, I think that's a great stance for scientists. I think it's a great stance for anybody. You want to be skeptical. But I think uh, cynicism is tricky. And um, and I should say that uh, Jack, just since we threw out his name, has really been a pioneer, has been decades ahead in terms of understanding how the other feature of our brain-body relationship, the respiration centers, can shape our states of mind. And so much of what we're doing now in our human lab on breathing and respiration to allow people to adjust their states and access sleep, et cetera, much of that is built on the fundamental discoveries of Jack Feldman. Um, and he's done his work in mice, we're working in humans, um, but we talk all the time and um, I just wanna tip my hat to him. You know, these uh, physiologists like Jack, uh, Francine Shapiro and the EMDR stuff, which that was clinical discovery first, but uh, the more that scientists communicate across fields, the better life gets. Yeah, for sure. And I really like that you're giving credit to to these other individuals, yeah, there's other scientists. While I have you here, since you are a neuroscientist, I'd like to zo double click or zoom in on the amygdala because um, I think it's a very misunderstood brain area. And um, you know, you mentioned you kind of you know associated like with how a lot of people associate it with it as the, uh, kind of the fear response. But it's been my understanding that. Um, the more nuanced understanding of the amygdala shows that it's, it really has to do with just emotional significance more generally. And I was wondering what your thoughts are on that more recent research. Yeah, I think you nailed it. I think, so the amygdala, we think of this, you know, fear center. It's, it means almond. It's these two little almonds on the side of our brain that are there just to make our life difficult. And, uh, you know, we used to be hunted by lions and now we're stuck with this amygdala and, and that's all wrong, right? It's, right. first of all, it's, it's a big structure. It's a whole cluster of structures. It's part of a network. It does not house fear. No one brain area houses anything except maybe our pituitary, which houses a lot of releasing hormones or our circadian clock or something like that. But uh, it's part of a network, a neural circuit, as we say, that is involved in vigilance and assignment of internal state to external cue. You know, our entire, I think there's a, there is an opportunity here for a brief little neuroscience lesson, which is every neuron or brain area basically does any one to three things. It's either a sensory thing. It senses stuff inside us and outside us. It's controlled in generating movement, motor 
or it's modulatory. It's trying to adjust when to move to what kind of thing or when to be afraid of what. Um, and our entire experience can basically be distilled down to two things, interoception, our perception of our internal real estate, and exteroception, our perception of our everything outside the, the uh, confines of our body. And the best way I can think of to conceptualize interoception, exteroception from a neuroscience perspective is that our experience of life from the time we're born until the time we die, even in sleep, is like a, imagine a uh, glass barbell with one sphere at one end and another sphere at another, and they're connected by a handle. We'll call it the tether. One sphere represents interoception and the other represents exteroception. And of course they're tethered and we can split our attention between what we're feeling inside and outside. So we can do this right now. If, if somebody wants to close their eyes or, or if they can't close their eyes, just try and focus as much of your attention on the sensation of your skin in contact with whatever surfaces it happens to be in. You do that for a second. You just made the bar, the, the globe or the sphere at the side of interoception a little bit bigger. And as you did that, the exteroception got a little bit smaller. Okay. Now, if you open your eyes and you focus your attention intensely on something outside of you, like a point on the wall across the room, chances are you can grow that sphere of exteroception and you will forget about your internal state just momentarily. Mm. Or maybe your focus on your internal state will, will shrink. So you can try that for a second. So just try and focus externally. Often this is best by focusing your eyes on a particular point. Okay. Now, typically we jump back and forth, interoception, exteroception all the time, and they're connected by the tether. So what the amygdala does is the amygdala addresses what is my internal state mm. and in my environment, is there anything that's novel or in particular threatening or exciting? And if there is, it starts to increase the, the robustness of that tether. It starts to link what I'm feeling internally to the actions of something external. And that is generally a threat, but it could be something positive. So if you look at humans who have who lack an amygdala, like people with Kluver-Busey syndrome, this classic syndrome where people, uh, you know, the animals start with like lick inanimate objects or try and have sex with inanimate objects. What you've really disrupted is the relationship between internal state and external events and wow. it becomes rather random. So the amygdala is not a fear center. The amygdala is a tether that tends to bias us towards behaving or not, depending on what's being tethered. So for instance, if, a, if, if I suddenly see a dark object walk past my window at night, and then hmm, I'll pause. If it comes closer and my I, stress level goes up, then I now am in this high state of vigilance, AKA fear. Now, if that thing disappears, it walks away, I'll start to feel relaxed, okay? The amygdala will then essentially, it's not responsible for the relaxation, it's responsible for me changing my behavior in response to that relaxation. So the amygdala is kind of like a security guard that can't actually do anything. You know those, those uh, security guards that can't actually do anything, they can just use their radio? Mm -hmm. you, you sometimes uh, see those at malls and you know something happens and they'll just, they can only call for the police. They can't actually do anything. So that's a one way to conceptualize the amygdala. And this interoception, exteroceptive relationship doesn't have a name in neuroscience. Maybe it has one in psychology, but it's a fascinating aspect to our experience because it's very dynamic. And I should just mention in sleep, mm. 
What's incredible is that the tether is completely dismantled. Our experience is all internal. We are 100% interoceptive. But in dreaming, we're you know, thinking about things and things are happening more or less at random. Space and time are untethered. This barbell becomes like two, two spheres that are linked by a piece of dental floss floating around in space and swirling. So space and time becomes very fluid. When we are in fear states or alert or focus states, bam, the tether becomes locked. And now our internal state is very much driven by whether or not the email in front of us says what we want it to, or whether or not we, we, you know, a comment made to us on Twitter, all of a sudden we are locked, we are tethered to that comment. And we're like, wait, how could you possibly say that? I consider that a direct affront or, oh, I love that. That makes me feel so wonderful. So the, our your space and time is governed by the, the rigidity of this tether. Or we could also say our space-time relationship is also governed by how loose and fluid this tether is. So in relaxed states, we tend to be very open to new contingencies, mostly because our internal state isn't locked to events around us. When we are in very high stress or very excited, positively excited states, our entire interoceptive world becomes linked to the external world. And the amygdala is crucial as a linker between the external and the internal. That's that's the simplest way I can think of to describe it. Yeah, and if we think about what uh, brain alterations you see in those who um, are psychopaths, um, I think that it's really interesting because psychopaths have a very uh, low startle response. It's hard to startle psychopaths. <laughs> and I think that's related to a lot of what you're saying. You know, it's not necessarily... Um, just threats that that they don't get startled by, but they don't tend to, you know, get terribly moved by a beautiful flower either. Right. They tend to, you know, some, I have a, a couple of friends who come from a background in military special operations and I'm have the great privilege of working with some people in those communities for, for enough for sake of uh, working on human performance things and also some of the rehabilitative things. And it's an amazing community because um, they are extremely good at what they do. They are selected through the most stringent protocols you could ever imagine, much more stringent than even the stuff we see about, you know, carrying logs and cold water, all that, but, but much more. And, and yet their so their, their main function is to be able to act effectively on their environment. And yet they are unique and distinct from sort of sociopathy because they also have a, an incredible ability to integrate the goals and desires of other people in a way that's beneficial. It's a really incredible thing. I think also very charismatic people, politicians, you know, when people say, uh, you know, in the presence of whoever this person was, you just feel good. Some people yeah. are just very good at dynamically interacting with people in a way that makes them feel brought in and seen. You know, that there's a story actually, mm -hmm. a friend told me that he met Oprah and he said, I've never met Oprah, but he said that the way that she moved through the room was, was stunning because she's always getting approached, right? Everyone wants to talk to her and, you know, et cetera. And she would just acknowledge people one by one in a way that made people feel truly seen. And I said, what was it? Was it like her gaze? And he said, I have no idea. But when she arrived at him and just said, hi, so nice to meet you, moved on. He felt like, he, he said it wasn't just who she was, it was the way that she was able to engage at almost kind of a, a trivial level felt 
um, like the glass had been poured completely full for the first time. And I thought, wow. And this is a person who's not easily shifted around by that kind of thing. He doesn't have any, he doesn't fan out. He's not really obsessed with celebrity or anything like that. So I think some people are just, I think naturally or, or through training or whatever it is, are just very good at engaging other humans in a way that makes them feel good. And I think sociopaths use that to the worst um, possible ends and people who, uh, and other people like, you know, Oprah, who seems like a nice person. I've never met her, um, but certainly, uh, I, it You're does not, not seem Oprah like a, a sociopath. sociopath. <laughs> I am absolutely not calling Oprah a sociopath. I think quite the opposite. I think she has a, my sense is, is that she has a deep empathy. And I think that when people feel truly seen by somebody, it's the opposite of manipulation, right? Um, and unfortunately we hear stories about sociopaths manipulating people, but, uh, and of course they're out there. Um, I'm sure, uh, my lab's never focused on uh, studying them. I, I kind of don't want to, cause I don't really want them coming to my lab. <laughs> <laughs> That's the yeah. last thing I want is a bunch of sociopaths going to my lab. Mm -hmm. But, um, but the link between the internal and the external and goal directed behavior, I think is, again, it's one of these tractable areas of neuroscience and psychology that I think we're just right now at the infancy of understanding. And what's missing is a language, right? We don't, we have language for so many other things. We don't have a language to describe what I just talked about. It doesn't yeah. exist. Great point. Um, I'd like to move on to another topic and that's motivation. Uh, mm -hmm. What can people do if they feel very unmotivated in their lives? Like, I, I just feel like that's a, just a common thing right now with COVID. Um, people are like, uh, uh, not languishing. Um, uh, well, people, people just don't feel like they're necessarily flourishing, you know, during this time. Right. So what can, can people do to kind of get that motivation back? Mm -hmm. Well, from a very core physiological perspective, motivation is the combination of two neurochemicals, what we call neuromodulators. And those two are epinephrine, goes by another name called adrenaline. We need energy, we need to move. And we often think that energy comes from food and it doesn't. Energy comes from neurotransmission and from particular neuromodulators. We need to eat, of course, to sustain ourselves, but goal-directed behavior requires a fuel and that fuel is epinephrine. And there are ways to increase epinephrine, we'll talk about it in a moment. The other is dopamine. You know, the neuromodulator dopamine does many things. It's involved in reward and feel good, but its main job is craving and motivation. I have a colleague at Stanford, um, Anna Lemke, spelled L-E-M-B-K-E, who's a psychiatrist. Uh, she actually has an amazing book coming out in August called Dopamine Nation. is all about dopamine wow. and addiction. Uh, she, you, I think you guys would really enjoy it. I want to talk She's, to her. Yeah. She's, I'll, I'll put you guys in touch. She's an incredible person and clinician. And um, she talks about dopamine as the molecule of craving. There's also another book called The Molecule of More, which is um, very good about this. Dopamine isn't about reward. It's about craving and motivation. And dopamine at the same time is something that we, that we get more of when we reach milestones. So epinephrine and dopamine are close cousins in motivation. There is a way to increase epinephrine, just pure physiology. And a lot of people are already doing this, and my lab has looked at this a bit, but there are ways to breathe 
that will increase epinephrine. Hmm. And there's another way to do it, which essentially costs nothing as well, which is you can throw yourself into cold water or get into a cold shower. Now, I'm not, there are a lot of reasons to do cold exposure uh, as long as it's done safely. But one of the things that isn't often understood is that when you get into a cold shower and you decide to deliberately stay there for one to three minutes or maybe even longer, you are releasing adrenaline from your adrenals and you're releasing the same molecule from your brain, which is epinephrine. It's called epinephrine in the brain. It's adrenaline from the adrenals in the body. Getting into an ice bath will do the same thing. That will increase your energy level. It is a mild form of stress, but it is energy level. Exercise will do it too, but a real quick way to do it is to get into a cold shower or an ice bath. Not everyone wants to do that. So with respiration, you can do this. My lab has studied this protocol. It involves taking 25 deep inhales and exhales. So it looks something like this. So in through the nose, out through the mouth, 25 of those, and you will be alert. You will actually feel a little agitated. And for people that have panic attacks or prone to anxiety, you might not like it. However, if you finish 25 or 30 of those breaths and you exhale all your air and hold your breath for about 15 to 30 seconds and then repeat and do that two or three times, so 25, 30 breaths in through the nose, out through the mouth, in through the nose, out through the mouth, then exhale and hold, repeat, exhale and hold. What you'll find is that during the exhale hold period, you can achieve a state of calm with very high levels of alertness. This simple trick, I don't like calling it a hack because this is actually what the biology was designed to do. A hack kind of implies you're you're cheating the system. And I don't like the word hack because it always sounds like something's getting carved up. And, you know, so I I hate the phrase biohacking. I loathe it. Um, (laughs) What we're we're talking about here is, is actionable biology or applied biology. So you're increasing epinephrine. Now, what you do with that energy is up to you, but many people actually find that just by doing this pattern of breathing, they suddenly feel like they could or want to exercise, or they could or want to work. They could or want to get up out of their chair. So that's one thing that can be beneficial. Um, The cold shower thing, you know, and Wim Hof is famous for, you know, the Iceman and for doing this breathing that's very similar to the type of breathing I described. You know, it's it's a way of generating adrenaline in the body at low levels, but that allow people to get into action. Now, the dopamine component involves reaching some sort of milestone or craving something. Dopamine is best served not just by reaching a goal, but by craving a goal. Mm. And Anna, I should say Dr. Lemke, in fairness, she's a friend and a colleague, so I, I call her Anna, but Dr. Lemke, because uh, she is a board-certified psychiatrist, um, has talked about this as let's say you eat a piece of chocolate. We think that the dopamine release that you get from that is actually about the satisfaction from the chocolate. But the next time you eat something delicious, pay careful attention. The good feeling that you're feeling is actually the craving for more. It is not an absolute joy in what you're doing. And this is fascinating and it's at the heart of addiction right? The, the, the cocaine user or even the pot user. And I realize nowadays a lot more people, you know, use pot legal and stuff. So it's complicated, but that craving for something or for, or for sex or for whatever it is, that excite excitement is craving. It's not reward. 
And that's because dopamine and pleasure and pain have a very unique combo. I'll leave it to Dr. Lemke to uh, complete that discussion because she can describe it so much more eloquently and accurately than I can. But the way to get dopamine is once you are in action, set a milestone. Okay, today I'm just going to go out for a walk or today I'm just going to send 10 emails related to some business related goal or whatever it happens to be. That can help dramatically, but without epinephrine, without the bias toward action, it is very hard to get out of complacent, inactive states. And remember, stress and excitement at a neurochemical level are just epinephrine released in the brain. But dopamine is the reset. It's kind of the re-up of epinephrine that allows you to repeat that over and over and over. And from a purely biochemical perspective, most people don't realize this, but epinephrine, adrenaline is made from dopamine. The biochemistry of dopamine and the biochemistry of epinephrine are such that they are, they are linked. You cannot have epinephrine without dopamine synthesis. So if someone has a real clinical depression and they're low in dopamine, well then talk to a psychiatrist. There are drugs out there like bupronirone, Welbutrin and things like that, that they work by increasing dopamine and epinephrine. Very distinct from other antidepressants that uh, like Prozac, which increase serotonin. Serotonin is the molecule that basically makes us feel pretty good with what we got in the present. Mm. It does not tend to drive motivation. It tends to come from eating, from having had, uh, you know, a satiating experience or meal. It does, it's not involved in craving as much. And of course, I'm talking about these chemicals in very coarse terms. They, they have subtlety to them. Uh, as well. Of course. Yeah. My colleague, um, Colin DeYoung, uh, has a really wonderful paper linking dopamine to the personality system. And, um, uh, just, uh, to tie this to psychology and, uh, he, you know, he calls it the neuromodulator of exploration. That's, that's, that's the word he uses exploration. Mm-hmm. Um, because, uh, you know, extroverts, it. extroverts score very, very high. Uh, they, they have a lot of dopamine production, particularly in this striatum and, uh, and uh, lower subcortical structures, you know, um, that motivate them to explore the social world. You know, it's like all about, you know, oh, I want to explore, like never enough. It's never enough for them. You know, like they always need someone new, <laughs> you know, or else they get right. bored. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and, uh, you know, this lies at the, at the uh, kind of deepest levels of our uh, evolutionary biology. You know, the anticipation yes. of sex and re- which of course underlies reproduction, which underlies the progression of our species. Uh, of course, there are other reasons people have sex, but the, but the dopamine is produced in pursuit of and during sex. But just to be concrete about it, after orgasm, dopamine levels plummet and, another, and a hormone called prolactin <laughs> is, is increased. Prolactin sets a quiescence. It's actually also what's released in um, new and expecting parents that calms them down and makes them very focused on the needs of another, right? Mm -hmm. You can't be running around like crazy, certainly not looking for new mates shortly after um, a child is delivered into a, a, you know, a a relationship or even a single parent. And when prolactin goes up, it tends to make us more quiescent, not want to seek novelty. It makes us content with what we have and put us into caregiving roles in both men and women yeah. and every variation thereof. And in animals and in humans, 
It tends to throw down body weight to, in theory to make us want to, uh, able to uh, tolerate long nights of no sleep to raise young. So it's dopamine is involved in the pursuit of food, the pursuit of sex, the pursuit of uh, money, the pursuit. But the moment that we reach those goals, there's a huge plummet in dopamine. And then it resets our, you know, over time it resets for the pursuit of more. And I think the book, The Molecule of More, describes this really, really nicely. I think it's Daniel Lieberman. It's definitely Lieberman. I, I think I have the first name correct. He's a psychiatrist at, at um, GW at George Washington um, or Georgetown. Forgive me. I don't know his affiliation. That's a great book about this, too. But I think that um, we can take advantage of the biology of epinephrine and realize that when we have increased levels of epinephrine, we need to move. And sometimes that can be keys on a keyboard and focus. Sometimes that can be actual physical movement around, exercise, et cetera. One of the most challenging things is to have high levels of epinephrine in our system and to be sitting still. That's called stress. And 2020 was a, a, a forced situation of, of limited movement from our usual routines and a lot of incoming information that was very triggering to a lot of people. And I realize we're still somewhat in this uh, thing now. It's not like New Year's hit and we're out of it. But uh, whether or not it's for work purposes or fear of COVID, et cetera, it's clear that bodily movement is a very, very good thing. And that the more we physically move, the more that these circuits in the brain and body that underlie motivation get carried out. Because the reason we have a nervous system I mean, I wasn't consulted the design phase, but logically speaking, evolutionarily speaking, the reason we have a nervous system is to move. The only way we can affect anything besides ourselves, other people, other events, et cetera, there are only two ways. One is movement and the other is sweating, right? Mm -hmm. Our sweat can uh, affect people, <laughs> not very in major ways in most cases, but movement is how we speak. Movement is how we eat. Movement is how we reproduce. Movement, movement is everything. And so epinephrine is like an engine beneath movement. Dopamine is like a rudder that steers us toward particular things as we move. That makes a lot of sense. Um, like I mentioned Colin DeYoung, but uh, I just want to bring up another part of his, his theory, and that's that there's this uh, nerdy dopamine pathway that uh, people are starting to understand where you can really get energized at the potential reward value of information. So that's for all our, our, us nerds out there. You know, there's, there are dopamine projections to the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Yeah. <laughs> you know? it, it's not all just uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll with dopamine. So that's another kind of misconception Absolutely. I wanted to kind of, uh, I've been trying to dispel that misconception. Oh, I, I totally agree. I mean, uh, uh, Dr. Lemke, Anna would talk about and does talk about um, internet addiction. She was actually featured in The Social Dilemma. Um, oh, cool. She doesn't have a big presence on social media as a consequence, although she, I think she has a somewhat of a presence there. But she, um, you know, it, I talked about this with her. You know, uh, she accused me of being a work addict, and um, she's probably right. I love learning. It feels good. It feels like a drug to me. It feels like a healthy drug. And so I love information. So I guess I have the nerdy dopamine type. And Maybe I love both. YouTube. I think, I think YouTube's amazing. I think YouTube is an endless, um, you know, library of amazing stuff. There's also a lot of garbage. But so you, as, I'm glad you pointed that out because we can forage with our minds just, just as much as we can forage with our bodies, except now – foraging with our minds is made much more accessible 
than foraging. It's actually come to replace foraging with our bodies. And so we forage with our minds. And I, I think uh, I love that concept. Um, who's the gentleman that you said? Colin DeYoung. I'll send you the paper. I'll send you the paper. Colin DeYoung. Great. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. He's a personality neuroscientist. He actually is uh, leading the field of personality neuroscience. And um, I'd love to see what uh, sort of connections can be made between the kind of work you're, you're doing, the kind of work he's doing, and that I'm doing with him and stuff. But Great. I, that sounds amazing. When I was at Berkeley, the, uh, Bob Levinson was setting up his physiology lab downstairs. And I remember thinking, wow, I didn't know that psychologists did physiology because back then it was pretty rare. Now there are all these wonderful mergers of yeah. fields. So it's Dacker Keltner and those guys who oh, are doing that. Yeah. yeah, so great stuff. Really great stuff. Um, just want to end this interview by uh, getting a little bit of an understanding of your, your your chronotype management. You know, how do you manage your unique chronotype? Do you have any suggestions? I want to know your daily routine, but can you also kind of just tell us about the science about um, you know, when you should sort of be doing certain things during the day in general uh, for optimal brain development? Sure. Um, okay, so the, there are four things that are, act as very powerful levers on when you will be awake and when you will want to be asleep, when you will be able to do your best work, when uh, you'll be able to do your best creative work. And those are your exposure to light, in particular sunlight. So light is one and is the most dominant one. The second is temperature. It's vitally important, environmental temperature and your temperature. Movement, aka exercise, but activity of various kinds. And then when you eat, and to some extent how much you eat, uh, that's easily uh, handled. Um, if you eat a large volume of any, any substance, it will bring more food to your gut, so it will make you sleepier. If you eat a moderate to a just quote unquote healthy level of any substance, it will tend to not overwhelm your system and you'll be alert. But there are certain things that you can eat to be more alert and certain things you can be, eat to be sleepier. So I just want to be clear. So let's think about light first and then I'll reveal my, my schedule uh, according to chronotype. Uh, so regardless of chronotype, if you're a night owl or a morning person, et cetera, um, you want to get bright light, sunlight in your eyes within the first hour of waking. If you wake up before the sun comes out, you want to turn on artificial lights as much as possible if your goal is to be awake. So put simply, if your goal is to be alert and to wake up, turn on a lot of lights, especially overhead lights because of the position of these neurons in the eye that reset our circadian clocks. Overhead light triggers alertness in the brain more so than does light right in front of you or light down low. So early in the day, try and get outside. Even if it's overcast, there's a lot of photons coming through. About 10,000 times more photons coming through a densely clouded sky than a really bright internal artificial light. So get bright light. And through a window is 50 times less effective. So I've talked to now thousands of people who tell me, just making this one simple change can really help because it triggers a circuitry in the brain and body that activates alertness and focus throughout the day through the cortisol system, healthy cortisol levels, et cetera. And it also triggers a timer so that the hormone melatonin is secreted about 12 to 16 hours later, which makes you fall asleep. Okay. Nice. So the simple rule is get a lot of bright light early in the day and throughout the day. 
So for those of you wearing blue blockers throughout the day, it's a huge mistake. Huge mistake. Is it like, don't do it. I know it. someone it's who just, does that. I know someone who does that. It's just <laughs> limiting your alertness. I think people like the way they look or how they feel when they wear them. But blue blockers in the evening can be very good because you want to limit or start to taper the amount of light that you get in the evening hours. And you want to avoid bright light exposure between 10 p.m. and 4 a.m. unless your job is to be awake at those times. And the reason is it can suppress melatonin, which is the sleepiness hormone, and it can suppress dopamine. There are two studies showing that. And mm -hmm. dopamine is important. It can suppress learning. It can cause depression at low levels. It can exacerbate depression for other reasons that's caused by other reasons. So a lot of light during the day and morning, especially in the morning, try and get it from sunlight. Try and not get it through a window. It's okay to wear contact lenses or eyeglasses when getting this exposure. But if you can safely do it without look, wearing sunglasses, better to do it without wearing sunglasses. But please don't drive off a cliff or injure your eyes or something. Never look at any light that's so bright it's, it's painful to look at. Okay, so I'll reveal my schedule. I wake up, first thing I do is I try and get outside, get five to 10 minutes outside, walk my dog, maybe even to read. It's gonna be indirect. You don't have to stare directly at the sun. If it's still dark out, I'll turn on a bunch of lights in my home if the goal is to wake up. Then as you move into the day, most people, because temperature starts to increase after you wake up, most people are going to be most alert and feel most able to do various kinds of mental and physical work somewhere between three hours. So I would say at about three hours after waking and 11 hours after waking, there are these two little peaks in our circadian timing mechanisms. Mm. The, you have to figure out when you do your most focused work, but for most people, they can do their fo highly focused work about 90 minutes to two hours after waking. So this is mid-morning for most people. And that's gonna be time where linear work, meaning the kinds of work that requires a lot of focus, and you more or less know what you need to do, but you have to, you know the strategy, but you need to implement the strategy or you need to figure out the strategy. So very focused kind of analytic work. And that's a terrible time to do email or be involved in meetings because it's gonna suck away your ability to do really what Cal Newport would call deep work, mm. right? Fasting and low carbohydrate intake favor alertness because it leads to a state of increased adrenaline. So I typically don't eat until about 11 or noon. I sometimes have some almonds or something like that or, or fat. Sometimes if I'm very hungry, I'll have some eggs or something like that. But I generally fast until about noon. And then at noon, I eat a meal which is generally some sort of meat or fish or chicken or something and a salad. I, I like cold food and I don't eat much carbohydrate. Now, there are exceptions to this. Occasionally, if I did a, like a hard workout early in the morning, which I rarely do, I usually work out later uh, these days, um, then I might eat some more carbohydrates. But typically, if you eat starches, like pastas or rice, et cetera, we always hear that gives us energy. No, no, no. Your energy comes from your glycogen stores, which are in your liver and your muscles and your adrenaline in your brain. You have to restock that stuff, but if you want to be alert, fasting, water, caffeine, make sure you're getting enough electrolytes. So salt is important. If you're, if you're fasting or not and drinking a lot of water, you can deplete electrolytes. A lot of people get kind of dizzy because they're not eating enough salt. Unless you have hypertension, it's generally safe to consume some salt. And so the daytime is when you want to be alert and working. And then 
after lunch, everybody experiences a little bit of a dip, but the lower carbohydrate intake during the day can prevent some of that dip. In the afternoon, I continue with the same, but I do a second work block in the afternoon, which um, I always do a what's called a non-sleep deep rest protocol. Once per day, I take 20 or 30 minutes, sometimes 10 minutes, and I do either yoga nidra, which is where you just lie down and listen to a script. I've put one out there, uh, totally cost-free, where you can just put on YouTube, NSDR. It was hosted by a company called Made For, but it's totally free of cost that takes you through a deep relaxation. This non-sleep deep rest has been shown to bring the brain and body into states that favor neuroplasticity that was published several times, including last year, replenish dopamine in the striatum that was published by a group in, in uh, Scandinavia. And, or I'll do the Reverie app. I'll do the, the hypnosis for kind of deep relaxation. I come out of that, I usually drink a little bit of caffeine. I do drink coffee and caffeine. Um, and then I'll do some sort of work for about 90 minutes or so that's more kind of creative work, like writing or something where the strategy isn't quite clear. It's a little bit more challenging. And I do this because in the afternoon or when we're sleepy, we um, a little bit more relaxed, I should say, not sleepy. We are able to create new contingencies. Creativity is, is taking existing things and organizing them in new ways in space and time. And that kind of space-time rearrangement is favored by states where we are deeply relaxed, not necessarily sleepy. So I do, try and do a 90-minute block of focused work early in the day and a 90-minute block in the afternoon. And during that time, I turn on a program called Freedom, a free program on my computer that locks me out of the internet. And I turn off my phone and I lock it in a safe because I'm not very disciplined with the phone otherwise. And then um, evening is when your temperature starts to drop. Some people exercise in the evening, which is fine. Um, if you are going to do... Uh, I should say if you're going to do cold water exposure, you want to do that early in the day because it's going to favor alertness, you know, ice baths, cold showers. If you're going to do things like sauna, hot baths and things, those should be done in the evening for preparation for sleep. There are exceptions to this. Some people like to do it early in the day, but it's, uh, temperature is a powerful determinant of these internal states. And then uh, my evening meals generally uh, consist of more carbohydrate, pasta, vegetables. I might eat some fish or eggs or something like that, but generally they're more carbohydrate-laden, which makes sleep fantastic. I'll tell you, carbohydrates really favor sleep. We all heard, oh, never eat after 6 p.m. Uh, carbohydrates are bad for you. They lay down body fat if you eat them late in the day. Nothing to be further from the truth. There's zero evidence for it. They facilitate the release of things like serotonin, which lend themselves well to sleep. So I cut out the caffeine in the, in the late afternoon and evening. I end up eating some starches after I do my exercise. And that helps you taper to, and I limit my light exposure, especially overhead light exposure. You wanna, if you're gonna have lights on in the evening, set them low. That would be the time to wear blue blockers if you want. But I should say that any light, if it's bright enough, will trigger activation of the alertness system, even if you're wearing blue black blockers. So nice. dim screens and kind of fade things out. And then I do use supplements to support sleep. I'm not a fan of melatonin because it has effects on other hormones in the body. But for some people, and again, I'm not a physician, so I'm not uh, telling people what to do. Always check with your doctor. Things like magnesium threonate, spelled T-H-R-E-O-N-A-T-E, or biglycinate, um, can help create a state of kind of sleepiness. They trigger activation of the GABA circuitry, which kind of turns off thinking etc. Um, theanine, T-H-E-A-N-I-N-E, -E, and something called apigenin, A-P-I-G-E-N-I-N, apigenin, which comes from chamomile. Many people benefit from taking those 
to allow them to relax. But of course, check with your doctor. I would say the, the, the two single most important protocols that I've adopted over the years and for which there's great scientific data are morning bright light exposure to the eyes. Again, never so bright that you're going to damage your eyes. You'll know because you'll blink if it's really bright. Definitely blink if you need to. And these non-sleep deep rest are doing a 20 or 30 minute deep relaxation protocol once per day because they help you get better at falling asleep, right? That's what these non-sleep deep rest protocols do. They help you get better at relaxing. Humans have no trouble activating their stress circuitry, but they somehow nature evolution made it such that we have to learn how to calm ourselves. So uh, that's what I do. And I do a bunch of other things too, but those are kind of, that's kind of the general framework. And I should say that if you are a night owl, you should still try and do the same things. But instead of trying to avoid light from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m., maybe you avoid light from like 2 a.m. to 8 a.m. I don't know. Everyone's schedule differs. If you're an early morning person, my advice would be do not push past your desired dead time, bedtime too far. Because what happens is it, many people wake up at 3.30 or 4 in the morning to use the bathroom. That's totally normal. Go back to sleep. Waking up once during the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, no big deal. You don't want to drink too many fluids late at night for that reason. But if you're somebody who's waking up at 3 a.m. and you cannot fall back asleep, chances are you are supposed to go to bed at 8.30 or 9 p.m. And unless there's an underlying anxiety, what's happened is your melatonin has run out and you're awake. The problem is it's very easy for people to push their bedtime out. It's much harder for people to go to bed early. Yeah. We've experienced this when you travel, you can always stay at the party, but it's very hard to say, okay, click, snap your fingers and fall asleep. So if you're somebody who wakes up at three or 4 a.m. and you're having a hard time falling back asleep, try and go to bed earlier. And then wake up at three or 4 a.m. and you're one of those lucky people that can get much more done in life than the rest of us. Nice. Um, I like it. Yeah, so that's the suggestion. And then most people will have a kind of typical chronotype. You'll wanna wake up around 6.30 or 7.30 a.m. depending on age and lifestyle factors. And you wanna to go to bed around 10.30, 11, sometimes 12 p.m. It's not, a, it, that's the typical uh, pattern. So those are the main things and as you can see, they, they relate to light, temperature, food, and exercise. And if you're going to exercise late in the day, well, have a protocol to bring yourself down afterwards and avoid too much caffeine. If you're gonna exercise very early in the day, understand that you're shifting your clock a bit. Anytime you do something regularly that involves a lot of activity, you're creating a system in your body of anticipation of that activity. So if you wanna wake up earlier, Wake up a few days, set your alarm, force yourself to do it and exercise at 5 a.m. Pretty soon you'll start waking up at 5 a.m. That's just the way these circuits work. I love it. Um, you know, we did, I, there are so many different topics we could uh, have nerded out today and maybe we'll table some for when I'm on your podcast and we can keep up, continue Great. the cut or even just hanging out here on the beach. We can continue our conversations. Um, but one big topic is flow. You know, something that uh, a topic we're both super interested in. I know we both have a mutual friend, uh, Kotler, Stephen Kotler. You know, yeah, how yeah. does how does this go, no go sweet spot that you talk about relate to the flow state? And then maybe we can end there. Sure. So, um, you know, flow still remains a little bit uh, unclear as a neurobiological state. But I talked to Stephen about this, and what I what I really appreciate about Stephen is he's intensely curious about all the things that it could be 
not just saying this is what it is. And I think yeah. that's something that there are many things that make Stephen a unique and, and, and special character um, and, and serious thinker. Um, but that's one of them. But so flow to me is when our interoception and our exteroception, that barbell model that I described earlier, kind of glass barbell, um, when that suits our, uh, our goals almost perfectly. So if I, you know, if I were to, I could even say like during this podcast, right, I was very focused on what's going on here and you and I are, mm-hmm. we're tethered in mm-hmm. and we're in flow, right? I mean, I wasn't thinking about the oh. fires outside or the, or my dog over <laughs> to my left or, you know, my, my attention might have diverted here and there for a moment, but we were in this space time thing that worked well, I like to think for the conversation we're having. For sure. That to me is flow. Now, what's challenging is understanding how we transition in and out of flow. And I think that's where at some point it can be operationally defined. I could not describe the set of neurobiological events that allow that to happen. But what we know is that the brain and nervous system, which of course links the brain and body and body to brain, it it somehow figures out very quickly, what are the contingencies? What are the relevant things that need to be handled here? What are we going to do? And it starts peeling away all the irrelevant stuff. And so that my internal state is going to be matched to what's going on and back and forth. And I think that, that it, it certainly involves activation of these frontal circuits that harness our focus and our decision making. And the way I like to think about flow it is um, speaks to a little bit of how I like to think about the nervous system generally, which is that it's like a bookshelf, um, but it's almost like a, it, like a bookshelf in a, in a Harry Potter novel or something. It's very dynamic. So we sit down and, uh, and I say, okay, here's Scott. We've met once before in person. I read your tweet. So I have a context. It's like a bunch of books on the shelf. And then as you start to engage in the conversation, things pop up. So it's Dr. Lemke and, you know, Lieberman and like all these things. And we start creating a context. So this bookshelf is very dynamic. And so what's brought to the front of your attention starts becoming more and more narrowly constrained, right? Mm -hmm. But as we end podcast and we get up and we go about something else, the brain doesn't just shut down our view of that bookshelf. It's still chattering in the background. And so a lot of what I think the the research around flow, if I may, should be centered on is how to access those states more quickly and more deeply. Because I think that um, we experience this whenever we pick up our phone and we start scrolling Instagram or Twitter. What they've done so beautifully um, and almost sometimes to our detriment, but beautifully with social media is that there's a ton of libraries of different types of information packed into a very narrow context. And so we're basically library flipping. If I look at your tweet and then I look at another tweet, they have no relevance to one another. So it's almost like being in one section of the library, looking at anthropology. And then all of a sudden I'm in geography. Then all of a sudden I'm in neuroscience. All of a sudden I'm in the murder mysteries and the brain sort of will try and lock to each one of those. And so it's anti-flow in one sense, but it, it's the flow is all within the context of the, of the application. When Kotler talks about flow, like on his mountain bike or while skiing, or, um, it's so tangible because in physical pursuits, we don't have the option to 
you know, mountain bike and ski at the same time. I mean, you could come up with some silly hybrid of that, but we don't have the option to cycle and swim at the same time. But with our mind, we have the option to, to leap back and forth all the time. So to me, flow is going to be best understood first in these very um, well-defined physical pursuits. But I'm throughout the day, I'm always thinking about what is my what is my tether locking? What is it, you know, and this is why I, I both loathe and, and love this device, the phone, because I find that it, um, it, it can allow for billions of contexts to enter my brain, yeah. but that's part of the problem, right? And so going down, going down, drilling down into a question like, uh, like we had this unfortunate incident we were talking about before we uh, logged, uh, started recording that there was an arson recently in the area. They caught the guy. Fortunately, we were asking him like, what leads somebody to want to do this? Went down the rabbit hole of arson for a little bit. That's actually an exploration of a single topic, which from a perspective of brain function is very normal and very healthy to think about a topic in sequence and go more and more deeply into it. It's actually kind of feels good. What, what is, what is, uh, diabolically, um, bad for uh, diabolical and is actually bad for us is when we our our brain is constantly switching between contexts and a feed. And that's what I think is the problem. If I had my way, I'd be able to filter my Twitter feed by psychology and neuroscience (laughs) or, or, and then I'd switch to like the other things I really enjoy. Like I'm a total animal bird, you know? So um, I, I don't know if that's a very good answer, but I think that flow deserves more work and it has to do something with our brain's ability to set context very narrowly. And we know that focus and narrow context setting is absolutely the place in which we experience deeper satisfaction, the place we experience, um, great learning and great growth mm-hmm. and where we access neuroplasticity the brain's ability to change. I've never been changed by simply scrolling through an Instagram feed. I've been changed by reading a chapter in a book. I've been changed by, I've changed the way that I think in general or very specifically about stories that I've read or interactions that I've had. And it's not to say that social media is evil. I teach neuroscience on social media. You have access to many, many more people, uh, I would say, right? Then you would be able to access. Sure. You were just locked away in some university office. Um, but I think we should think about how many contexts our brain is locking to each day. Uh, and, and I think we should embrace a potentially embrace a concept, not just of flow, but of anti-flow and anti-flow is what we're doing a lot of the time. And anti-flow is the enemy of neuroplasticity and anti-flow is the enemy of the ability to achieve flow. I do think that flow is a skill and I think Kotler would probably agree, although I don't want to put words in his mouth. I'd love to know what you think about this because I'm just kind of riffing at this point. Yeah. I, I, again, I think this is, is a to be continued conversation for us because I'm eternally fascinated or perpetually fascinated by this topic and really interested in my work um, on uh, the coupling um, um, of the executive attention network and the default mode network in in just such a way that you get the optimal state of flow where the attentional uh, executive attention is lowered just enough that you're um, directly accessing the rich uh, internal uh, 
uh, fantasies and associations. And so it gives you that feeling of like, you're just jamming, um, you know, so that's the, that's the topic of creative flow. You know, there's, I think there's different types of flow, you know, that we're having social flow right now, which I think might be activating different brain networks than if I'm doing jazz improvisation or if I'm just doing creative writing or writing a poem. Um, so I think uh, we need to talk about domain spe- the domain specificity of flow uh, in addition to how we, you know, call or tends to talk about this like general sort of like, let's, ex- let's have one theory to explain everything. And it's like, it's not possible, you know, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, words like, so in, uh, just as a reflection, you know, I'm in such deep admiration of the sleep scientists, uh, you know, that have defined different stages of sleep, REM sleep, slow wave sleep, stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four, ultradian cycles. We sleep in repeating 90 minute cycles, all this kind of stuff, right? Early night dreaming is more about uh, recovery of the body and motor learning. Later night dreaming is REM dominant, more about emotional uncoupling from prior experiences. It's kind of a therapy of sorts. We have basically zero taxonomy to describe waking states. Mm. And we have basically zero understanding of the neurobiology underlying those states. Whereas with sleep, we understand a lot thanks to the great efforts of that community. So I think the next 10 years of neuroscience and psychology, we are tasked with figuring out what is a really good taxonomy of states. And flow is what I would put under the category of highly desirable states. (laughs) It sounds wonderful. Everybody wants it. It's like the thing you want. The reason my lab has focused on states that are far more mundane, like stress or calm or alertness or focus. Um, we are interested in creativity, et cetera, is because I, I'm a big believer that we can build up our understanding to these more complex and highly desirable states through a basic understanding of the ingredients that go into feeling sleepy or alert. And it also probably reflects the fact that um, I love to think about high level concepts But at the end of the day, the question, you know, that every PhD advisor asks their highly ambitious student or postdoc is like, okay, what's the experiment? You know, I think every academic has had the experience of having this brilliant person come to them, highly enthusiastic. And the student says, I want to study blank, blank, blank. And you say, okay, great. Design an experiment. And, um, and so I think with flow, we need to start designing experiments and uh, I'd love to be involved in that effort if ever there were the opportunity. And I'm sure there are experiments out there, but um, right now it, I think is the time to start thinking about what are these states of waking? Like, I could, like what state are we in right now, Scott? I don't know, I, I feel alert, focused, but like what, what, what is that, does it have a name? Does it even need a name? Clearly, as you said, it's different than the kind of flow I would experience um, snowboarding or downhill skiing or something. Right. So. Um, more, more language to describe the nuance, but in a, uh, tractable way, right? Language can either confuse or it can clarify. And what I like so much about the way that, um, you, uh, place things is that I can, you know, because of your background as a, as a, you know, as a researcher and because of your background and, and current ground as a, as an academic, you, you know, that ultimately, there's got to be an experiment with which we can measure this. And I think that's, we need more of that. And so I, I just, this is also a reflection on how much I appreciate um, your knowledge, because I think that in the social sphere of so, uh, internet psychology, most or a lot of what's out there is just naming stuff that sounds cool and sounds clickbaity. 
but that's not the same as understanding something at all. Definitely not. I think both of us, we want to understand the mechanism um, behind these things. And there's, there's different mechanisms at play with different states of flow. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to end here and say to be continued. Like I, I, I know I keep saying that, but um, uh, I just, I really appreciate you coming to my podcast. I really appreciate what you're doing in this world, Andrew, and um, the passion for science as well as the rigor to science uh, that you bring, you bring both of those things. And that's a wonderful combination. So thanks so much for being on my podcast today. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. It's been a, a real pleasure and I look forward to, many more conversations and uh, be fun to uh, grab another workout on the beach. That was fun. <laughs> That'd be a lot of fun and stay safe for, stay safe from the fire, the fires yeah. behind you. Yeah. Yeah. You might be able to hear some of the planes and um, helicopters, you know, hats off to the firefighters that are, that are doing this incredible work and um, well, hats on for now, they should keep their hats on, but that, you know, but, but um, definitely they deserve a nod. Uh, they, they do such hard and, and dangerous and important work. And uh, it's only when we have a fire that you like stop to think, wow, there are these people whose profession is to basically save our lives and our property. So, and the police who caught the guy. So yeah, yeah I'll stay safe. Stay safe so we can hang out again soon. <laughs> All right, will do. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, if you'd prefer a completely ad-free experience, you can join us at patreon.com slash psychpodcast. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.